Mary or Mary Leslie, however Southern you are. I am a deacon here at Bellwether, and I have our scripture for this morning. It's Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Again, actually, here it is. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, awesome. I want us to be glad recipients of God's word every week that we come into this place. And so I'd love for us to practice that a little bit. Um, And before we dive into this short passage at the beginning of Galatians, I want to ask you a question just to ponder for a moment. A lot of us have a lot of exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've heard it before. Um, And today maybe will be one among many times that you've heard the story of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so I'm going to ask you this question before we begin today. What difference would it make if you had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's going to be on the screen. Just wait for a second and ponder that. What difference would it make if you had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe there's things uh, about your past, shame in your past that you know that the gospel alleviates. Maybe there's guilt right now in your present that you know that the good news of Jesus Christ alleviates. Maybe there's fear of the future that you deal with that the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses. Maybe you don't feel any of those things. You feel pretty self-confident and reliant as you come into this room. But I want us to ponder this question because this question is being answered in the book of Galatians with a loud exclamation point. And so if the gospel of Jesus Christ does not answer some reason for your hope, if it does not answer your guilt and shame and fear and all of those things, maybe there's something in your life that does answer that question. How will I deal with my past and my present and my future? Everyone does have an answer to that question, how you deal with it. Everyone has an answer to the question, how can I be good again? How can I be made right again? There's so many answers to that question that the world is trying to get us to latch on to. And I want to go ahead and tell you the conclusion of this book, that all of those things that the world offers to answer that question will never be enough. It will never be enough to make you okay with God or to make you feel right enough with Him. There is nothing that you could do that's going to settle the questions of your shame and your guilt and your fear. There's nothing, past, present, or future, that you could do that will accomplish what Jesus Christ has done for you in your place for your sins. And for those that are trusting in Jesus Christ, that is really, really good news. And so there's several questions that are going to be answered in the book of Galatians. What is the gospel? What does someone have to do in order to be included into the people of God? How can someone be reconciled to God? What does the church require for entry? All of those questions 
are at stake. And so as we answer them, there's so much potential when we get to the conclusion of Galatians. My prayer and hope for us is that we would be renewed in our vision of what God has done on behalf of everyone who would believe that we would be excited about it. I'm excited about it. My prayer is that we would know the truth of the gospel. For those of you who do not know the truth of the gospel, you've never understood what we're talking about when we say good news. It's, no, it's always felt kind of like mediocre news, like uh, just something to, that the church is all about. For those of you who do not know, I pray for you, I've already prayed for you, that it would become clear both your need and this great resolution that Christ has offered us in his death and resurrection. That the way to come to Christ is by faith. It's not uh, in anything that we could do. Listen, the way that I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was a really, at the time, I was a really good kid. I went to this camp, and, and while other kids were like taking classes on, uh, you know, fishing and crafting and all these things. I wanted to go to this class that was specifically about witnessing for the sake of Jesus. I was the kind of kid that was so interested and zealous to propagate this message of the gospel that I was like, I need to go and hear about it. And when I heard someone explain how to explain the gospel, I realized that I had never understood it for myself. I was like, wait a minute. I've heard all about that for all of my life. But up until this point, my faith was in a prayer that I'd prayed or some invitation that I'd made to God to come and join me. It was in all of these things. It was in walking an aisle, all of these things that could not save me. And one of my prayers for us as we go through Galatians is that for those of you who are trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and what he's done, that you'll come to see the beauty, the compelling nature that you could not do anything to, to reconcile yourself to God and Christ did it all for you. That's one of my hopes. Why Galatians? Those that do not know the gospel would see it and realize that they've never seen it before. Second hope that I have for us in the book of Galatians, for those that, that do know that Jesus Christ is your only hope, but you found very little relevance for how that transforms the way that you live, that you would see the power of the gospel, not just at the entry point of your faith, like how you got onto the Christian team but you would see it for the power by which you are being transformed every single day. That's one of my hopes while we walk through Galatians, that the gospel wouldn't be a previous hope that got you into this team, but it would be your present hope and your future hope, and it would be the daily uh, uh, contribution that God is making to your life so that you can walk with him and walk by his spirit. So if you do know that Jesus is your only hope for getting in, but it has no relevance to you in the daily life, my hope and prayer is that gospel wouldn't be an entry point, but it would be daily for you. This, this appropriation of who God is and how he's working. For those that believe in lost a sense of the glorious nature of what God's done, the beauty of it. For those of you who believe, one of my prayers is that you would be captivated once again. For those uh, maybe have come to a point where you no longer feel amazed by God's grace, that you'd be reminded of the beauty and the compelling nature of what Christ has done for you. And it would be transformative. My hope is that the gospel would become clearer for us and for those that have witnessed the truth in the past and beforehand, that this moment and the moments ahead, the Sundays that we have in this book in God's Word, that it would be radically transformative for us because we believe that the gospel has power. In Romans chapter 1, it says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. In other words, there's power 
available to us in the proclamation of this truth. It's not just a historic truth about what Jesus has done. There is a power that is to be unleashed by the proclamation of it. There's so much potential. There's potential for it to transform lives. It has power to redeem us and to change us and to empower us. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So why would I bring us to the book of Galatians as a church? For those that already know the truth that's going to be in this book, my hope is that we would be enamored with the beauty of it again. That it would be so compelling. That it would win our hearts over again. That we'd be overwhelmed by the amazing nature of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus. That we'd be surprised again that God would be so kind. That we would be amazed And so, as we begin in this passage, I would like to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to make some really simple observations, one that you could have made yourself, okay? And then we hope that God would use those observations to change us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you'd use it today to transform lives. We believe that there's great power in this message, and so we receive it from you and ask for our hearts to be ready, good soil for your gospel to be planted, and that it would bring forth great fruit because of our belief in it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're going to go through a couple things today, two things in this introduction. First, the context for this book, what's going on, who's the author, what authority does he have, what's the occasion for him writing it, and then what is the context, what's going to happen. And then the second thing is, Uh, what is the message? He gives us this primer right here in the beginning of what the gospel is and what it looks like. So first, the context. Uh, The context really matters for this book and God's word because this is a letter from a real person to a real group of people. And so the letter cannot mean something different today than it meant for the people who received it originally. So we first have to understand these are real people. Paul's a real guy. He's a real uh, a message that he's bringing to them. And so who's Paul? What authority does he come from? First, Paul, who is this guy? The author of this letter. First, he's a persecutor of the church. He's one of the ones who held people's jackets and he watched people be stoned. He's standing at the edge of Christianity's growth and he's trying to stop it. He stands against it. He, he's going to describe himself later on in this chapter in First. Uh, verse 13, he describes himself like this. You've heard of my former life. He was notorious in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But God, (laughs) rich in mercy, when he had set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace. So in other words, look, I had a radical change of direction. The author of this book is saying, look, I was moving the complete, I wasn't just kind of meandering my way into Christianity. I was opposed to it and very much so. He has a radical conversion story where Jesus shows up and he transforms his life and he says, why are you persecuting me? It's personal for Jesus. He looks at Paul and says, why are you, why are you doing this to me, Paul? And he brings him along with his message and mission. He says, this is now the aim of your life. And so Paul moves. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go and try to get like training from the other Christians. He goes and spends time with Jesus Christ. And this is important because later on, he's he's from the very beginning, 
he's defending who he is as the messenger of this gospel. He's saying, I didn't get this from some other person. Peter didn't lay hands on me and say, say, this is why you're commissioned to go do this work. No, he's saying, my commissioning came from God himself. So with what authority? He says, I'm I'm an apostle. That means sent forth one or an emissary. It held legal meaning for Paul. It's like saying he had uh, legal rights to stand in the place and say things for God himself. And so he was an apostle to the Gentiles. That's how he describes himself in Romans. Apostle, this sent sent one with power and authority to speak on God's behalf. It's like the power of attorney, basically. He shows up and says, I have a certain kind of authority and it did not come from men. Next part says it's not from men. It's not derivative Paul didn't gain this because of other people's approval of him. He wasn't kind of making his way in the path of other Christians, and they were not saying, hey, you're a really good speaker, so we need you to go speak for God. He's saying it's not because other people noticed this in me. It's not through men. He's sent by God to the church. He is sent out as missionaries, um, but he's sent ultimately from God with God's authority, and that's important because the message that he brought was being challenged. His authority is through Jesus Christ and through God the Father. That's how he describes it. The origin with God himself. It's not an attempt to describe something about God. This is God describing himself through someone. He's saying, I'm giving you words to tell them what I'm like and how I've worked. It's through God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, there's some great power that comes along with this authority. He's the author, he has authority, he has great power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is coming behind me and I'm walking in that kind of authority. And so he's saying, me and the brothers with me are writing this to you. Now at this moment, I just want to pause for a second and say that the Galatians, when they received this letter, they're seeing his defense of who he is and with what authority he came. And so they had a decision to make in this moment. They're looking at Paul and saying, okay, is this guy crazy? Is he speaking with his own authority? Or is there something to his words? Is there something to this? And so every person in this room today, in the same way, will have to deal with Paul. you got to say, is this a crazy man? Or did he come with some other significant authority that seems transcendent, otherworldly? And, and this decision that all of us make to deal with Paul's words happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's coming from God. His message is coming from God to the Galatians. And so if they receive it, if they reject it, it's because of God's initiative and him coming and saying, this is how I'm working in the world. And so today, as we look at Paul and we're asking the question, crazy man, or did he come with authority? As you ask that question personally and you read through the words of Paul, there has to be something that happens individually. Like, so you have to deal with it. Is this man speaking of his own authority or did it come from some other authority? And so as we move forward into the message and his introduction to what he's about to lay out in the gospel, I want to ask you that question. I want you to deal with that question as we walk through. Whose authority does this man speak with? Is it coming from himself? Is it because other people liked his message? Or is this coming from God himself? Now, who's the Galatians? Last part of the context, the audience. No, not the last part. Next last part. <laughs> These are real people in a real place. They're real converts to Jesus Christ. They're Gentiles by birth. In, order, in other words, they didn't have a history of family where other people were following Jesus, okay? 
They were first-generation Christians, and they were not coming from a God-fearing background. They probably were pagans, so they didn't have like parents who were Jews who had taught them about Yahweh and this coming Messiah for all of their life. They're not with some long heritage of following Jesus. So if you're coming into the room today and you like have no spiritual pedigree, you're basically like a spiritual mutt, and, and no one told you about no one told you about Jesus for your whole life. You're in good company with this group of people. Now here's the other thing. He's going to tell them that they're fools later, okay? So all of us that listen to this, we're saying, if you come in with a pedigree or not, the message of the gospel is true. And so the context of Galatians is people that have just been saved radically by Jesus's grace, and they're somewhat vulnerable to some other message, which leads into the occasion for him writing. What's the occasion for this letter? There's a crisis of clarity when it comes to the gospel. The gospel message was from the beginning to be to all nations. Remember back when, when God tells Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you blessed, and then through your seed, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. He's saying, look, this message of God's goodness to the world is eventually going to everyone, but it initially comes through a very specific group of people. And this is what's getting confusion. This, this first group of people, the Jews first, in what I just read in Romans, this group of Jews who had first heard about Jesus and began to follow him, they came into Christianity with a long list of culture and customs that all came from their ethnic background. They were ethnic Jews, so they're coming in saying, hey, look, we celebrate God in all of these ways, and they worship God in very specific ways, okay? They had celebrations every single season of the year. They had feasts where they'd throw big parties and camp out together and all of these things. And then one of the first things on the list of things that meant to be a Jew was being circumcised. So these new believers uh, get visited by a group of people called Judaizers. That's what some people call them. Um, and they come in with all their cultural backgrounds of what it looks like to follow the God of the Bible. And they're saying, look, guys, it, God's grace is great through Jesus Christ, but I got these other things that are really going to enhance your experience of God. They're really important. If you really want to be on the inside group of us that really know God, you got to do this other things too. And the, the, the people in, in these churches were so vulnerable. They're like, that sounds great. Let's add to it. I mean, this seems like a good idea, right? Jesus is sufficient to pay for our sins, but let's add some things to it so that we can just have more experiences of what God's like in the world. And so the Judaizers begin to tell them some things um, so that they could be maybe earning their way or making themselves more appealing to God or to earn God's favor. And that's where it all falls apart. And that's why the tone of this letter is very frustrated. Paul sounds like a coach who's gone over the place. He's like, this is the place. And then they go out on the court or the field and everyone forgets what they're doing. And he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? How could you leave it so quickly? I told you what you were supposed to do and now you're going to this other route. So he's frustrated with them because of legalism. Now, legalism, anytime you say this word or the word legalistic, there's so many times when we have like a confusion around what that is. Uh, for most people in like Southern Christianity, it just means that you see someone who has some other virtue that you don't currently see as moralistic, and you're like, I don't hold that, so they obviously must be legalistic. You know what I'm saying? Like you see someone who's, maybe they appear to have their life more together, or they do things a little bit better than you, so you look at them and say, 
well, they must be legalistic. Maybe they're just following those rules. That's not what it means. Through a few things that, the, that this means, legalism. First, it means that they're working in their own power. Yeah, Jesus did a lot to save us, but now, go get them, tiger. It's all yours. Go. That's the first way that we can express ourselves or, or express legalism. It's, it's working in our own power to accomplish the good things that God wants for us. It's saying, hey, I'm glad you got me on this team. Now I'm going to strive by my own strength to do all that I can for you, Jesus. That's one form of legalism. There's another form where we work to determine our own rules and by our own rules. It's looking for your own assessment of what is a good life. So if I ask you the question, what's a good life? You probably have a list of things that you're like, this determines a good life. If you do this, you don't do this. You do this, you don't do this. And sometimes maybe you're doing things that God would require of you. But ultimately, a form of legalism is saying, hey, I'm the ruler over what is good and what is bad. And I am wise enough to determine what's good for me, what's bad for me. And I'm going to live in such a way in which I'm making the list of shoulds and should nots. And they're not made according to God. They're made according to whatever I'm feeling according to that week. Okay, And that results in so many bad things. Legalism in that way is, is saying to God, look, I get to define what's good and right for me. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're more moralistic than the next person. It just means that you get, you get to determine what you think is good, what you think is bad, what you think makes God happy, what you think makes God sad, what you think makes a life work in the right ways, and what you think doesn't make a life work in, in the right ways. So ultimately saying, hey, God, I reject you as the rule maker over my life. I'm going to make the list of rules, and then I'm going to transport those rules onto every person I'm around. Because listen, legalism, it will make you a judgmental group of people. Because other people, they don't, they don't know the same rules, according to you. They start living by their rules, and you're living by your rules. Whose rules are we following? Legalism is a way of us saying, hey, I can make my rules for me and for you, and I can have those expectations for you. The third way to be legalistic is this. We work to earn God's favor. We think that somehow we can make things right with our holy God. That in his righteousness, in his holiness, that we could somehow appease the ways that we've offended him. And some of you, maybe you're here this morning thinking that God's a little more happy with you because you came to church. Like you might as well brought a heifer into church and cut it, okay? Like just bring it up to the altar. <laughs> Look. The only reason that God can look on us and just be so pleased is something that we couldn't do for ourselves. It's something that Jesus Christ has already done for us. And he's declared us right before him. And so now we get to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Not so that we can earn his favor, but because he's already declared it on us because of Jesus. So some of you are here maybe thinking that, that God could be more or less happy with you. Um, and you're thinking that maybe, listen, there's great news for you if you came with this tension of thinking there's like a, a checklist of goods and, and wrong things and you're just trying to outweigh the good with the bad. There's really good news. You don't have to earn your way to be right with God. The most startling truth and beautiful truth of Christianity is there's absolutely nothing we could do to earn God's favor. Because of what Christ has done for us, it's already been declared for those who have faith in him. That's really good news. 
He gives it freely through Jesus, and we're released from the treadmill of trying to be good enough, accepted enough, successful enough, seeking to resolve our guilt, our shame, our fears in the future. He does all of that with the conclusive act of Jesus suffering in our place for our sins and rising again. <laughs> That's good news. That's really good news. Now, here's a couple signs that you might be a legalist, okay? Some of you may be thinking that God is more or less pleased with you depending on how you're doing currently. Like, the present pace of your spiritual life is all, like, his favor is kind of like this uh, favorometer where if you're doing great and you've spent every day in God's word, he's like, oh, that's my kid right there. That's my kid. I'm really happy with him. Some of you, one of the signs of being a legalist is you've got something big coming up in your life, like some big decision or some big job change. You're really hoping for something good, and you're like, I better get my act right. <laughs> you start living right. You're evaluating your life every single day. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> or maybe the opposite is true. When you sin, you like wait for God's anger to cool off with you. You're like, I don't want to approach God because maybe he's still upset about that thing I said, that thing I did. And I don't want to like approach him as if, as if you could somehow be right enough for him to go, okay, now you're back in my good graces. In all of those ways, we're diminishing God's gift to us through Jesus. Another sign that you might be a legalist is that when you see others who don't share the same cultural values or ethnic values that you bring into Christianity with you, you don't value them in the same way. You're critical of others who don't share the same strengths that you have. Maybe you were just born with those strengths. Like maybe you're not tempted by the things they're tempted by just because you were born in those ways. And rather than seeing people through God's grace towards you, you see them towards, with your own judgment towards yourself. So if you're trying to heap some, uh, if you're trying to alleviate your guilt with what you can do, you're going to hope that everybody else can alleviate their guilt by what they can do for you too. And it makes us incredibly hypocritical. <laughs> it turns us into hypocrites because we set all these values up that we know we can't live by and that we never have. We begin to export the best version of ourselves, like or some projection of ourselves. So that other people look, they look at us and they're like, that's fake. They're not real. That's not real. Several years ago, there was some research done asking people what they thought of Christians, like unchristians. What was the number one thing that came to mind? Hypocrisy. As the number one thing that came into their mind. And look, everybody's a hypocrite, right? Like everybody lives by a, a standard, and like you say, this is the ideal, and no one's living up to it. People who believe the gospel have the freedom to admit it and stop pretending. Like we can bring our authentic selves into the world and say, this is exactly where I'm at. I'm not pretending to be better than I am. I don't need to be worse than I am. I'm thinking rightly about myself in alignment with what God thinks himself. He ultimately declares who we are and what we are, that we can be loved. It's not because of something we do. So the gospel of grace, it leads us to be this authentic people. It leads legalism just to die in the shadow of God's glory and then uh, he brings us, that brings us to what he says about the gospel. Now, his attitude in addressing the Galatian is both 
to correct them and say, you guys are being foolish, and to clarify what is the gospel, what is it, what's the truth, what must a man do to be saved, what is he supposed to do? So he's going to be correcting and clarifying all of these things, and he gives us this little primer into where he's heading right here in the greeting. Look at the greeting, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this gospel greeting, it starts off with grace. He's going to begin his letter with grace. He's going to end it with grace. Grace is amazing. It's unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. There's nothing you did to pay it back. There's no attempt to like owe God something back. Or maybe you could like decrease what you owe him by what you did. There's none of that. He's saying grace to you and peace. There's a freedom in giving this and receiving it. It's also a powerful work of God in your life. Listen, God's grace isn't only, it isn't only his unmerited favor towards you. It is his power to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's him at work through you. You didn't, you didn't earn that either. So everything good that you accomplish, everything good that you display in your life that reflects what he's like, that's also God's grace. So it's his acceptance of you. It's his power through you. It's both of those things that he's saying, grace to you. It's his power at work in you and towards you to redeem you. It's from God. It didn't originate with Paul. I already said that before, but it's really important that grace and peace to you is from God. And then he gets to the core of this gospel message right here in the beginning. The foundational message of the gospel is in verse 4. It's through Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Few observations about this first. He gave himself. He became a servant even unto death. He freely offered his life in our place for our sins. He laid it down so that we might be saved. And he did it for our sins. That means that everybody hearing this today, you guys can look around you because you've got one thing in common. Every person has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single person has the same need in common. And even if your need is a little bit greater than the person next to you, it is just insurmountable. There is nothing that you could have done to reconcile yourself to God. He did it for you, for us as sinners. Every person in this room has rejected God as king. You've tried in every way possible to live as the king or queen of your life. And that's the beginning of the news that's good. Look at Romans uh, 3.23. For everyone, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and justified by gift a grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look, this is our only hope. I want you to consider the difference of a plane leaving Afghanistan two months ago and one leaving this week, okay? The way that people saw those planes leaving the country. And the gift of God's grace will only be great to us in as much as we see our cost and need for our redemption. Look, the only way that God's grace is amazing is that you see your need for it. So the first, everyone in this room has the same common need for God's grace. He was offered for our sins. And he put himself forward. Look at verse 25. It's going to be on the screen from Romans 3. Who put himself forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show 
God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look, before I move forward, I just want you to see this. It's so beautiful. That in the cross of Jesus, God is both just and the justifier. He's just. In in other words, everything that he had formerly passed over. Look, when he's merciful to you, it's not because he's like an unrighteous judge. If we had a merciful God who did not punish sin, then he would be unrighteous, right? Like if you had a judge here in this city that basically said, okay, you promise never to do it again. You promise. And they're like, I promise. And the judge is merciful all the time. People would be crying out for justice. They'd be saying, hey, there's something about this that isn't right. Sin has to be punished. So in the cross of Jesus Christ, he is both just and the justifier. He's both merciful and gracious, and he poured out his wrath that all of us justly deserved. Every person in this room stands in common need of redemption because we stand in under this condemnation of our sin. And so he says, no, I'm going to rescue you. And so in as much as we see our need, our appreciation for that redemption will be as great as our understanding of our need for it. I'm going to say that again. Our appreciation for our redemption is only going to be as great as our understanding of our need for it. The cure is always going to be irrelevant to those who don't know they have a disease. And for those of you in this room who you do not see any, like this, this message of the gospel doesn't feel like winsome and compelling what I want you to know is part of our indifference towards the gospel is not seeing our need for redemption. His sacrifice to deliver us from this present evil age is like those people clinging to the plane as it left Afghanistan. Did you guys see images of that this week? It was so disturbing. It was so disturbing to see people storming the airport saying, get me out, please. And the gospel is like that. It's saying, hey, I want to offer you something you could not afford, that you could not do for yourself. And it's only relevant for those who want to get out. It's only powerful who know that they need, for those who know that they need it. So he offers himself for our sins. And I just want to uh, give you this as a consideration. Let's just imagine that I take my daughter on a, on a date, a little daddy-daughter date, right? We go to a very nice restaurant. And we, I, I mean, we order appetizers and dessert and everything in between, a special sparkly drink, all these things. And it is very expensive. It's something that my daughter could not pay for on her own. And it comes time to pay the bill. And she's like, listen, I got a few dollars from babysitting that I want to contribute to that, okay? And I want you to imagine what my heart would be in that moment, I so freely want to give her this gift. And then she gets really stubborn. She just says, no, no, no. Now, this isn't a real scenario, okay? I think she would totally agree to receive this gift. But let's just imagine that suddenly she's like, no, I don't want to receive this from you. I do not want this. I I want to contribute to this. I want to give something so that this isn't so expensive to you. I don't want to think of myself as a burden to you, Dad. And here's what I want you to know, that any way that you're seeking to diminish the debt that was paid for you, it is an insult both to God's holiness and to his grace. It's an insult to the cost of what was paid for you. 
It's an insult to the goodness of his grace towards you that was free in Christ Jesus. And so I want to urge you as we walk through this book to never diminish the glory of the one who gets all the glory and the praise for our salvation. And that's what he rubs in in verse 5. Look at verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, if we rightly understand the gospel, we're not going, I'm so proud of you guys for believing it. We're going, thanks be to God. He saw us in our helpless estate and he said, you're mine. And there's nothing you could do to pay it back. There's absolutely nothing that could make you more worthy of my love. I'm pouring it out on you. Please don't try to contribute to this. Please, it will diminish the gift that I'm trying to give you. And if we rightly understand that, we're clinging to him as our only hope. Our hearts will result in praise and glory will say, God, To you alone be glory forever and ever and ever. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not a result of works. Why? So that no man may boast. God wants to take all of our boasting and say, please don't bring that. Please don't bring that offering to me. I've already made the offering for you. I've already paid the price. Lest you should boast. Oh, look, most of us, uh, in our very low moments, we're like, thank you, God, you paid the price. Tim Keller says, we need to remember that we're saved by grace when we fail, yes, but we need to remember it much more when we succeed. Look, some of you, life is going great, you know? Like, you're doing good. You're like, I'm, I feel like we're cruising. It's just the wind is in your sails and you're just going. And I want to remind you that it's by grace that you've been saved. And I want to conclude with these two things. First one is this. God is the hero of the story. He's the hero. Simple invitation to us today to stop seeing ourselves as our redeemers and to see him as the hero. He's the one. That's what all the truths of Galatians lead us to. Galatians, it leads us to this conclusion. Look, he's the hero. He's not trying to make you a hero. He's he's trying to be the hero in your story. If you're trusting in your self-righteousness, your goodness, your virtue, I promise you, you're just going to be weary and tired and afraid because nobody's good enough. You're going to be looking at the future and thinking, how can I be saved? Not just from Corona. You're going to be looking at the future and saying, like, how can I be okay with the world, with others? If you're weary, if you're ashamed of your past, you have a sinking sense of guilt in your present and you're fearful and all the things I did. All those things. Here's God's message to you. Jesus Christ suffered for your sins. He freely offered himself and he confirmed and assures you of your salvation in the future that there is not a day when his presence will not be enough for you. And so his grace is enough. And I want to ask you this in conclusion, what are you trusting in to save you? I just, if it's anything outside of Jesus Christ, please cling to him. My hope for us as a congregation is it would be transformed by that truth right there, that he alone is the hero. He's the one. Don't trust in anything else. It will forsake you. It will leave you fearful, afraid, 
ashamed. So let's, let's pray and then rejoice in that truth. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would just set up these parameters of what the gospel is and what it means to us. Pray that you'd be glorified in all of it, Lord. And as we sing these songs in response to you in this gospel, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with praise. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.